You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Hi, I'm Annie in the U.S. And I'm Johanna from Austria, and you are listening to your favorite international podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in, as Annie loves to say, to say yet that. another episode featuring the creepy parts of life. Thank you so much for your messages, your ratings, reviews, your votes for the podcast magazine Hot 50. Please keep going with that one. And in general, for your amazing ongoing support. Thank you so much. And as always, we want to give an extra thank you out to our Patreon members who help make all things possible. We love you so much. We really appreciate you. Our murder tier game night is this Thursday, May 26th. So check the feed for more information. And if you don't know what we're talking about, but want to know more, listen till the end of the episode. We'll tell you all about that later. Because yes. right now we want to get into today's episode. And I'm really excited because Johanna has a case for us today. That's right. It's a German murder case. Maybe even a serial murder case. Let's see. That takes place after World War II. I think we talked a lot about cases from before or shortly after World War I. But I don't think that we have talked a lot about those years that followed the Second Great War. There's also a quick warning. I will be mentioning the murder of a child. Also, this is a cold case, so just heads up for those of you who are not into these things that leave you without any answers. Mm. All right, so this takes place in a very short period of time, in late January, early February of 1947 in Hamburg. And you know how we do it here. First of all, here's a bit of background info about Hamburg, which is located in northern Germany, roughly 180 kilometers or 112 miles south of the Danish border. Now, what do we know or what can I tell you about Hamburg? From wikivoyage.org, quote, The free and Hanseatic city of Hamburg, so that's the Freie und Hansestadt Hamburg, is Germany's second largest city and at the same time one of Germany's 16 federal states or Bundesländer. Prior to the formation of the modern German state, Hamburg for centuries enjoyed a status as de facto independent city-state and regional power and trade hub in the North Sea, so it's very comparable to Venice in that way. Although situated over 100 kilometers or 62 miles upriver from the North Sea on the Elbe, Hamburg has been one of Europe's most important ports for centuries as reflected in its full name referencing the Hanseatic League. The city was built upon a number of islands formed by the wide river and its larger and smaller tributaries, and a huge part of its southern half is occupied by the massive port. With a tumultuous history preserved in more than just the ancient name, Hamburg grew to become one of Germany's most affluent cities, today hosting almost 1.8 million inhabitants and forming a metropolitan center for many smaller cities and towns in neighboring federal states. Its riverine location allows it to compete with Amsterdam or Venice with the number of canals, most of which called Fleet or Brook, are actually former small rivers and streams regulated to allow the sprawling city to expand over their banks. And on top of that, Hamburg has more bridges, over 2,300, than Amsterdam, Venice and London combined. 
Wow. There's plenty to enjoy in Hamburg, both in terms of use, culture, and the general high standard of living Hamburg has come to be known for. End quote. Nice. I know we had at least one maybe even two episodes, I'm not sure, where we talked about the sheer amount of cities that are called, you know, the, this is the Venice of... Uh, oh, yes, the Venice of the Midwest. Or something like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Venice of the East, Venice of the Midwest. I don't know. Yeah. But Hamburg, just like St. Petersburg, is called the Venice of the North. And to this day, Hamburg is a very important trading hub and port. That's why it's called Hansestadt. The Hanseatic League, mentioned in the quote I just read to you, was a medieval trading and defensive union of several important port cities in northern Europe. At its height, there were 192 cities from 16 countries in the union. I don't think they were all at the very same time, but it's a very powerful union. Very, very famous. What else is there to say about Hamburg? I already mentioned that today there are roughly 1.8 million people living there. One of them is a very lovely friend of mine. Hi, Ingrid, in case you're listening. I so want to go to there soon because I have never been. I mean, I'm pretty sure I had flights to Hamburg back in my flight attendant days, but I never left the airplane. I know a lot of people who visited Hamburg and they all had nothing but good things to say about the apparently very beautiful city. It sounds amazing. Do you want to go when I finally get out there to visit you? It sounds really nice. I think we should do things here in Austria before we spread out all over Europe. Yeah, you're right. We can just we can easily <laughs> spend a week or two in Austria, can't we? Yeah. Someday. Eventually. One day, someday, when we go there, some of the must-sees in Hamburg are, of course, the port. I mean, you can't go to a city world famous for its port and not visit the port. Then there is the Elbe Harmonie. I know my friend loves that place. It's the rather new concert hall next to the Elbe River. It's very interesting to see, even if you don't attend a classical concert there, because the glass building looks like either waves or a hoisted sail, depending on your interpretation of it. Of course, as a Hellion, you need to visit the largest garden cemetery in the world, which is in Hamburg, the Ohlsdorf Cemetery. It is home to over 280,000 graves. There you can visit the final resting places of people like... Uh, the German actors Gustav Gründgens, Hans Albers, Heinz Erhard, uh, the German author Wolfgang Borchardt, or the physicist Heinrich Hertz uh, and his nephew and Nobel Prize winner Gustav Hertz, just to name a few. Nice. Of course, in the evenings you can visit the world-famous entertainment and red-light district, the Reeperbahn and the Große Freiheit in St. Pauli. By the way, some of you will know this. The Beatles kind of started out in Hamburg, where they played in different nightclubs uh, between 1960 and 1962. The most famous places where they would play regularly was the Indra, the Star Club, and the Kaiser Keller at the Große Freiheit. That was back when the band consisted of John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Stuart Sutcliffe, and Pete Best. Pre-Ringo. Pre-Ringo, exactly. Pre-Ringo. At first, the band had to sleep in a storage room of a tiny, shabby cinema. For shaving and washing, they had to use the cold water from the urinals. <laughs> Paul McCartney was quoted as, quote, We lived backstage in the Bambi Kino next to the toilets, and you could always smell them. The room had been an old storeroom, and there were just concrete walls and nothing else. No heat, no wallpaper, not a lick of paint, and two sets of bunk beds with not very much covers. Union check flags. We were frozen. <laughs> Get out of my house, Paul McCartney. Stop being such a stalker. <laughs> like... Also interesting, there were five people and had two sets of bunk beds. 
you know, on a cold night, it's nice to have somebody yeah, to spoon with. They were freezing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, still, George Harrison later said that the Reeperbahn in Hamburg was the most exciting thing that they had ever seen up until that point, of course. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they saw some pretty crazy shit later on in their lives. <laughs> But yeah, it's it's pretty fun to imagine, isn't it? Like just five like young adolescent men in one of the most famous entertainment districts, mm, you know, going exactly. on to become the Beatles and Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. But enough of that because when our case takes place, the Beatles were still kids. A little bit older than toddlers. They must have been like five, six years old in the streets of Liverpool. So Let's go. Let's go to the end of World War II. In July of 1943, during the so-called Operation Gomorrah, the city was bombed by the Allied forces for over a week, killing 37,000 and wounding 180,000 civilians. Most of the city was destroyed during the air raids. The following are excerpts from an article by Erin Blackmore, published in the National Geographic on 22nd of July 2021, Annie, I sent it over to you via email. Would you do me the favor of reading it to us? So, quote, The bombing of Hamburg foreshadowed the horrors of Hiroshima. Operation Gomorrah was the first time Allied forces targeted civilians using an innovative technology that rendered German radar all but useless. Paul Peters staggered out of the bunker, driven into the Hamburg street by the increasing heat bomb after bomb had inflicted on his apartment building. As people rushed outside, they were hit with hurricane-force winds, flying sparks, and burning debris. It was 1943, and the attack the Allies codenamed Operation Gomorrah had transformed an orderly harbor city at the heart of the German war machine into a living hell. Quote, the firestorm was so strong that hats were torn off heads and whirled through the air like burning fireballs, he later wrote in an eyewitness report. Even little children, running around alone, were bodily picked up from the ground and thrown through the air, end quote. Though Peters survived the night's air raid, his wife did not. Named after the biblical city God was said to have destroyed with fire and brimstone, Operation Gomorrah was an eight-day, seven-night bombing campaign designed to level Germany's second-largest city. It marked the beginning of a new phase of World War II, one in which the Allies would begin targeting civilians in a concerted effort to crush German morale and put an end to the war. It was also the first use of an innovative new technology that rendered radar all but useless. The attack marked a shift from precision bombing, which had proven ineffective, to an all-out attack on both targets and the surrounding civilian areas. Targeting civilians was an idea that Allied leaders found distasteful at the beginning of the war. Despite initial losses and Nazi Germany's demoralizing blitz bombing campaign against London in 1940 and 1941, they at first resisted calls to give the Germans a taste of their own medicine. My dear sir, this is a military and not a civilian war, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill famously told an MP who had called for swift retribution for the Blitz. It was time for a change in tactics and a controversial strategy known as area bombing. The concept was simple. Instead of bombing specific targets, Allied bombers would focus on targets and surrounding civilian areas. With this new strategy, the Allies had decided that their enemy was not just Adolf Hitler or the German military, but German morale. Despite their initial hesitance, Churchill and U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed on to a new plan to target and destroy German cities. Their reasoning? Perhaps one or two unprecedented attacks would be enough to end the war. 
As the Allies began shoring up their ability to bomb a German city, they took lessons from the Blitz that had so shaken Londoners. After noticing that Brits whose homes were struck by bombs were less likely to show up to work, analysts determined that destroying Germany's largest cities and towns would likely cripple Germany's war efforts, and they decided to drop incendiary bombs designed to start fires, alongside traditional explosives after seeing how much damage German incendiaries had done in London. Now all the Allies needed was a place to stage the tactics' big debut, and they found it in Hamburg. A major center of both inter-European and international trade, Hamburg was a mainstay of German military might. The U-boats and other ships that made Germany such a dangerous foe at sea were produced there, and its 1.5 million inhabitants made critical contributions to the war effort. The Allied bombing raids killed tens of thousands of Hamburg residents and destroyed more than half of their homes but they were ultimately ineffective at putting a quick end to World War II, which would continue for another two years. The very factors that made the harbor city a prime target made it a treacherous one. Hamburg had been on high alert throughout the war, equipped with massive flak towers packed with anti-aircraft guns and guarded by the most modern radar technology. But Allied strategists had a secret weapon up their sleeve, a new technology codenamed Window. Invented by British scientist Joan Curran, Window was a tactic now known as radar chaff. The idea was to create false signals on German radar screens by throwing down paper strips coated in aluminum alongside the bombs. When a radar-generated radio wave hit those hundreds of shiny strips, it reflected their energy back to the radar screen. That reflected energy would seem to radar operators like a large object, fooling them into targeting what was actually dead air. Window created a virtual smokescreen that rendered German radar all but useless. Operation Gomorrah begins at approximately 1 a.m. on July 24, 1943. The first bombs of Operation Gomorrah fell. In the days that followed, hundreds of British and American planes flew over Hamburg. British planes focused on night raids while Americans flew by day. As British bombs fell into the city, sheer chaos erupted on the ground. Confused by the chaff, the German Air Force sent pilots on pointless missions while searchlights scanned the sky aimlessly and on-the-ground gunners fired seemingly at random. And that was just the first night. Over the days and nights that followed, the raids came again and again. Citizens tried their best to extinguish the flames that were destroying entire city blocks, but their efforts were mostly in vain. Contemporary reports include descriptions of blinding flames, panicked civilians, and collapsing buildings. Just as the Allies had planned, a combination of weather and explosives created the perfect fire conditions. Hamburg was in the throes of an unusually dry summer, which turned its wood structures into tinder. The worst night was July 27th when an unprecedented firestorm overtook the city. Winds reached speeds of 170 miles per hour and the street temperatures rose to at least 1,400 degrees, enough to melt glass and asphalt. The rapidly rising air fueled an inrush of new oxygen, further fueling the fire. The oxygen was literally sucked out of basements and air raid shelters and replaced with carbon monoxide and smoke, suffocating inhabitants. Civilians scattered, disoriented and terrified, dodging falling buildings and dead bodies as their own clothing burned into their skin. As Hamburg resident Heinrich Johansen huddled under a wet blanket with his son in a pile of gravel at a construction site, he, quote, saw many people turn into living torches, end quote. 
In basements and air raid shelters, bodies simply disintegrated into ash. The shrieking storm sent billows of smoke 20,000 feet high. From above, British pilots reported the smell of burning flesh. When the flames finally died down a week after the first bombs fell over Hamburg, the magnitude of destruction was nothing like the world had ever seen. A total of 9,000 tons of bombs had been dropped, and at least 37,000 people were dead. More than 60% of the city's housing was gone. It had been the most destructive battle of the war thus far. In the days that followed, nearly a million people fled Hamburg. Meanwhile, concentration camp prisoners were brought to the city to dig graves and clean up. End quote. Thank you, Annie. That's a lot. It's horrifying. Horrific, really. And please, you lovely hellions out there, bear with me. There is a reason for this history lesson. The whole part about this destruction of Hamburg has something to do, in a way, with this case this Mm. week. Two years later, the capture of Hamburg was one of the last battles on the Western Front, and on 3rd of May 1945, so that's two days after Adolf Hitler had committed suicide in his Führerbunker in Berlin, the city of Hamburg officially surrendered to the British army. Now it was time to rebuild what was destroyed during the war. The Allies ordered their prisoners of war as well as former low-ranking Nazis to start clearing the rubble, but of course also women, mostly between the age of 15 and 50, played a huge, huge part in doing that work, simply for the fact uh, many men in that age bracket were missing. They were either captured, dead, or still missing, right? Mm -hmm. The winter of 1946-1947 would later be known as Hunger Winter, so the Hunger Winter, was the coldest winter of the 20th century in that area. Temperatures would drop to minus 20 degrees Celsius, that's minus 4 degrees Fahrenheit. Now that's already cold for us in our heated and insulated houses. But now imagine a city like Hamburg with over 60% of the houses in ruins and displaced people, refugees, soldiers who came home and they were all flooding into the city. A lot of the people were living in the ruins trying to keep warm in basically what's left of a basement. And that's already hard if you have coal or firewood. But in this winter, people found themselves without any means to heat up their living quarters. Electricity and fuel was rationed. Private households would often only have two hours of electricity per day. Most of the coal was reserved for the industry. People would roam the ruins for firewood. They would steal coals from freighters and trains, and many people died while doing so. Uh, A lot of children. Many, many people would get arrested for stealing coal. In December of 1946, it's 1,000 people who are arrested for stealing coal. Wow. In February of 1947, it's 17,000 people. Wow. Arrested for stealing coal in the city of Hamburg. Okay, imagine in just three months. And the food, I mean, there simply was no food. Ration cards only allowed 770 kilocalories per day per person. People sold what they had or they exchanged it for food. I read a couple of eyewitness reports from that winter in Hamburg. Uh, one six year old brings home leftover soup from school and he's so happy. He can't believe that he he got this food. He was so lucky to bring it home. Nobody else wanted it. And he's so proud. And he hands his mom this pot of soup. And she opens it. And the soup is moving. Because it's full of maggots. But they still eat it. Another thing I read was so heartbreaking. That was after the, the hunger winter was over in 1948. 
kids uh, had an assignment to write about the most beautiful day of your life. And this was printed in a newspaper later. A 10-year-old girl writes, quote, The most beautiful day was when my brother Friedrich died. Since then, I have a coat and shoes and socks and a knitted cardigan, end quote. Jesus, that's dark. Wow. I mean, can you even imagine a 10-year-old's happiest (sighs) days that her brother died because she's now finally warm? She's finally warm. Wow. When it comes to this case, it's really, really important to keep in mind that people in Hamburg were suffering a lot. They were freezing and they were starving. And that's where all this takes place during this period? Yes. Yeah. Okay. In this in this winter, exactly. So we are in the early afternoon of 20th of January, 1947. So exactly in that hunger winter. And a couple of kids were roaming the, the debris of the bombed houses. Probably they were looking for firewood or something, you know, or they were playing. Sure. Yeah. And they were running around near the train station Landwehr in Hamburg, Altona. And um, they climb into what's left of the basement of one of the factory buildings. And there they make a horrifying discovery. There they find a body. And it's probably safe to say and very sad to think about, but that was probably not the first dead person they saw in their life. I mean, they had all just survived World War II. But this body was something else. It was a young woman, somewhere around the age of 20. She was completely naked, and the police is called, and they described the young woman as slender, but not emaciated, blue eyes, blonde hair, which has like a mid-length. Uh, she has all her teeth. They're in a, in a really good condition. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't have what they call working hands, which I take as she had soft and manicured clean hands. Sure, yeah. She has a scar from appendix removal, but overall she looks to be neat and well-groomed. And that's definitely not too common in those years after the war, and especially not in this winter in Hamburg. They also find the cause of death. Her neck shows a very thin, they call it like a millimeter thin Mm. red line. So the young woman was strangled, probably I assume with like a A wire or something like that. And she was probably murdered the previous night and placed there in the ruins. So the police immediately assumed that That was not the murder scene. Mm. The police releases a statement asking for witnesses or for people who are missing a woman that fits the description. Nobody comes forward and nobody seems to miss her. Oh, that's the worst for me. I hate that. It just, I don't know, it always really bothers me. So was there anything left at the crime scene? Did she have any belongings there? Was it anything other than just her? Most reports that I read uh, said there was nothing. I also read one, I think it's in a book but it's more a novel based on on what is in the oh, investigation. Okay. Yeah, so they say that maybe they found a piece of, like, salmon-colored bra or something like that. Okay. Most articles said there was nothing else there. Okay. So. Nothing important anyway, for sure. Nothing important. Yeah. Nothing important. Only six days later, on 25th of January, another body is found this time in the ruins of a house in the Lappenbergsallee. That's more or less 7 kilometers or 4.3 miles northwest of the first location. Okay. I mean, it's not super close by, but it's in the vicinity. Like, I feel like I feel like the last time I went to New York City, I probably walked 5 miles in a day, right? And 
it's not that far. It's not that far away. It's not it? that far. It's not that far. But it's also not not. It's super not super close. close either. I mean, we're it's gonna not, talk about it. Yeah, it's not later, like next yeah. door either. Yeah, but yeah. So did they find another young woman dead? No. So this time it's the naked body of an older man around the age of seventy. He's described as follows. So his height is one sixty or five point two. He has gray hair, a long gray mustache. Um, he's again slender, but not emaciated. Uh, again, he has blue eyes. He has well-groomed hands. So again, not working hands, but this time he has no teeth, which means that he probably had dentures mm. and they were missing because I mean, he, he was neat. He was, he didn't appear like a person who just has no teeth and not wearing dentures. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. Yep. Yep. He he definitely could have afforded them the way he looked. Let's mm -hmm. say it like this. Uh, his nose is a bit crooked. And this time they find something. They find a black bamboo walking cane, which they believe to be the victim's walking cane. That's the only thing. Okay. Oh, and he also, unlike the first victim, he appeared to have been beaten in the face several times. So oh, there was okay. kind of a struggle apparently going on. The police thinks that the man has been dead for two or three days already. But again, it was late January. It was this very, very harsh winter, uh, so the decomposition was not too advanced yet. And just like the first victim, the man's neck showed a thin red line, so he too had been strangled. Okay, so it's the MO that connects the cases, both undressed, both strangled, because other than that, the victims are pretty different, right? Mm -hmm. As well as the location they were found, it's not like in the same neighborhood, in the same close area. Yeah. It's it's definitely the DMO that connects the two murders. Yeah, and was anybody missing him? No, just like with the first victim, nobody came forward to shed any light on his identity. All right. So you said possible serial murders. Are there how many? How okay? How many more? There's more. <laughs> there's more. Yes. So <laughs> but wait, the next one more. was found on first of February in Bielstrasse. Mm. So that's rather close to the train station Landwehr where the first body was found. That's, that's, I, I gotta post a map. It's super close. Okay. This time it was the body of a young child, a girl. She was probably somewhere around the ages six to eight. Her body was discovered in what was left of an elevator shaft of a burnt down mattress factory. Again, the victim was completely naked. Well fed, neat, again the cause of death was strangulation, and again, nobody seems to miss her. So nobody's missing their child. Nobody, that's, that's... I mean, during a war though, oh, yeah. No, but I mean, it's 1947. That's if true, yeah. the child would have been an orphan, yeah. she would have been in an orphanage or in some kind somebody of should uh, be missing her. camp, somebody would be missing her. Yeah. somebody, a yeah. child. It's yeah. different to a grown-up. It is. Yeah, you're In right. my opinion. No, yeah. I agree. But anyway, we'll get to that in a minute. So now they put out a reward for any information that leads to an arrest or that helps to identify the victims. 5,000 Reichsmark and 1,000 cigarettes. Uh, but nothing. And if I calculated correctly, that would be 16,500 euros in today's money or 17,600 US dollars. And the 1,000 cigarettes, they were even better. Because remember, cigarettes and nylons could get you a lot of things on the black market. Oh, yeah. I read that one American cigarette, Lucky Strike, they called Lucky Strike a currency, actually, <laughs> after World War II. 
So one lucky strike or another American cigarette on the black market was worth the equivalent of five to eight Reichsmark. And one loaf of bread could cost you up to 300 Reichsmark. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. But um, despite this very huge reward, there was no valuable tips, not even when the reward was later raised to 10,000 Reichsmark. Wow. On 12th of February, a fourth and final victim is found in the Ankelmannstraße. So again, that's close to location one and three. And this time it's the naked body of a woman in her mid-thirties. Again, the cause of death is strangulation. Again, the woman appears to be neat, well-groomed, hands, her hair is blonde. Again, mid-length, blue eyes. She is wearing upper dentures and two of her molars uh, in her lower jaw. Uh, they are gold-crowned. Okay. The murders had now also made international headlines, and so several articles were printed in European, Canadian, and American newspapers, all with more or less the same content, like this one from 13th of February 1947, from uh, the Daily Telegraph, London. Quote, Cigarette reward in murder hunt. Believed to be fourth victim of murderer for whom Hamburg police are searching, unclothed body of woman with hands tied, was found yesterday on rubble heap. Hamburg radio stated reward of 1,000 cigarettes and 5,000 marks, so that's 125 pounds apparently, has been offered for information about murderer. End quote. Okay, so her hands were tied. Well, the article says so, and let's circle back to that in a little bit. Okay. And I'm guessing, again, nobody was reported missing who fit this description. Nobody exactly. was missing yeah. her. Okay. Yeah, nobody was missing her. Authorities now warn the people of Hamburg that a murderer is on the loose. They are advised to only walk in the middle of the streets, so not close to the house ruins, so that nobody can jump them or grab them and drag them away. Ah, uh, yeah. Police are also pretty sure that the locations where the bodies had been found were not the scenes of the murder. They had found clear signs of the bodies being dragged in the gravel and rubble. Well, that's all terrifying. Mm-hmm. Warnings are issued to homeless shelters, train and bus stations, you know, where the, the refugees and displaced people would come in, and they would tell people not to follow strangers, not to hitch a ride with anybody, and all these kind of things. So yeah. they were taking this extremely seriously, and, and they actually did a great job taking the uh, circumstances. Oh, no, it seems like it, definitely. And so that fourth victim, the young woman, she was the last, the last victim they found? Yes. So no other victims connected to the rubble murders was found. So serial killer is probably not the correct term, though, because, well, the murders didn't take time over a period of at least a month, and because the significant cooldown phase seems to be missing, right? Right. Would it be a spree killer or a mass killer? Spree killer, maybe. We or, don't know, because we don't... Well, let's see what we know. You'll tell me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting ahead exactly. of it all. So let's talk about the theories on who the victims were. Uh, in a minute. But first, the police tried several things to find leads in the case, and they were really smart about that. I mean, and you should never forget that they were post-war. Most high-ranking officers in the police had been arrested because they were, or fired because they were in the in the Nazi party. Right. I mean, it is what it is. Uh, so they were missing a lot of, of staff. Sure. But they, they really, they had some really great ideas. So what they did is, first of all, they did show the dentures of victim four to uh, different dentists in the city. 
they checked to see which ration cards had not been used lately. Right, right, right. Okay. But, I mean, you also have to say that people were stealing other people's ration cards as well, so... Of course, yeah. If they had them with them, if they had any, and if they had them with them, somebody would probably try to use them in a way or another. When I met my late husband's grandma for the first time, she had this shoebox of mementos from the war. And she was so proud to show me her ration book. She was in England and so proud to show me how she never used all of her rations because she didn't want to take away from people that needed it more. And I really regret it because at the time she was like, you should take all this. And I was like, I don't want to take your things. And then she passed away. and I think they ended up just gone. So now I wish I had taken them, but yeah. So no luck with rations. No luck with rations. They also check the black markets. They check the pawn shops for clothes or any other items that could have belonged to the victims. I mean, of course, the problem was they didn't know who the victims were or what they had worn or what kind of belongings they had had, right? So mm-hmm. they could just take guesses. As I said, the victims appeared to have been comparatively well off. They were well fed. So they hadn't just come from a refugee camp. Their hands were soft and manicured, so they hadn't been doing any hard work lately. Um, the most likely theory was that these four people were actually four members of a family because police also noted that they, they were all re- rather on the, on the smaller side, yes. height-wise. Yes. They all had blue eyes, the, the facial features kind of... Kind of made sense. Been, okay. It made sense that it could have been a family. So that was the, the kind of theory they went with. No, I, I wondered think. that when you mentioned, because the, the gentleman that was found was on the bit more petite side. So, yeah. So, and then they kind of theorize, right, that the murderer maybe was the fifth and last member of the family, you know, or some other person, a stranger, or someone known to the family. Of course, there was no DNA testing, so this theory could not be proven. But from the ages of the victims, I think it most likely was that it's either a father and his two grown-up daughters and a granddaughter, Mm -hmm. or father, daughter, and two granddaughters, or... I mean, everything could be possible. Any other constellation, like niece. Sure. I don't know, cousins. Yep. Any of that. We just don't know. We just don't know. Of course. Wow. The police found it likely that the group had just come, you know, to Hamburg. So there are different possibilities. Either they were displaced people from the east. You know, there were tens and tens of thousands who had come to Hamburg. So it actually makes sense that nobody was reporting them missing if they had just arrived and if they were the members of a family or at least a group of people who were somehow connected. Mm-hmm. That also explains why not even the child was reported missing. Because who who would report them missing if these are the only people that of course. were in contact with each other? Of course. Oh, God, like refugees don't have enough trying to end them. Now there's somebody trying to murder them. I think what speaks against them being refugees or displaced people is they looked too well off. Yeah. They were not starved. Yeah. Of course, there were also people who still had valuables, but at that time in Hamburg, it was just really, really rough. And if they would have been there already for a longer time or been on their way for a longer time, I mean, that would have been something like something. Yeah. Not so well fed, for example. Right. I mean, they were slender, but... And also, if they'd been in Hamburg for a while, then somebody would have probably known them, right? Like, somebody would have... Exactly, yeah. Where did they stay? Right. Some shelter, some some room they rented. 
Uh, so, I read in the old mystery forum, I know I mentioned that one before, so it's basically a German forum for all things murder and mystery, and the online sleuths there are freaking amazing, like seriously. Uh, and one of them, or some of them, had another theory, and I was like, duh, why haven't I thought of that? It's so obvious. Makes so much more sense. What if they were people returning home? You know, people who had fled Europe, and now that the war was over, they right. wanted to come back home. Yeah, From yeah. South America, Canada, US, Turkey, whatever, Israel. Yeah. So many places where they could have gone, right? Sure. What if they had come by passenger ship? It would make sense that they would show up in Hamburg, right? I mean, I know that the harbor was pretty much destroyed, and in 1947, apparently, they were only back at working at 25% of the pre-war capacity. So not sure if a passenger, passenger ship would stop in Hamburg, or I don't know, Bremen, Wilhelmshaven, Bremerhaven. It's all not too far from Hamburg. It's all in the north. And Hamburg might not have been their final destination. But because of the harsh winter, they were kind of stuck there. Right. And maybe they relied on the help of someone who promised to get them on their way to wherever they needed to go. Right. Which would make total sense. Maybe they were not displaced people. They wanted to return home from overseas. Right. So that definitely, I think that actually makes a lot of sense. So the motive in this case would just be monetary, just easy marks. Yeah, probably greed, I think. Yeah. yeah. They were definitely not struggling as much as many of the other people in the city around that time. So my best guess, and I think what many think is that they had managed to take valuables with them, mm -hmm. gold, jewelry, money, maybe dollars. Right. And that the person who murdered them was after that. And that could also be the reason why a whole family was murdered, you know, to cover up the crime. You know, that I actually really like that theory. And I think that actually explains maybe why they were naked because yeah. what if they had sewn money and different things into their clothing what if they're um what if they were they were well off i mean we're going to talk about the the clothing in a while okay. but what if they were well off and they had monogrammed clothing items oh sure i was thinking more like what if dollars were stuffed into the yeah yeah sure but um, also there could be like something that would identify them and help figure yeah. out that's interesting, because yeah. if they did that, then you'd think it had to be somebody who knew the killer, who knew the victims, right? Because otherwise there'd be no link, so it wouldn't matter. So many questions. Yeah, so many questions, and there are so many things that are unclear to us today. The, the police kept things kind of confidential, in a way. Mm-hmm. In what way? Like, what did they... Well, for example, I would like to know in what order the victims were murdered... Did right. they even know that? I don't know. All, were they killed all at once? Were they killed on different days? There were always five days between the findings of victim one, two, and three, and then an 11-day gap. Uh, victim one was found on the 20th. The police assumed that victim two was murdered between 23rd and 25th of January. So that would mean that there would be at least three days between the two murders. Was, for example, victim one, the young woman, the primary target... And then the murderer realized, oh, oh shit, the, the grandfather or the father is looking for her now. I have to right, kind sure. of get rid of all of them. I mean, it's 1947, two years after this horrible war. How accurate is the forensic at the time? Yeah. Uh, the country is completely torn by war. And let's not forget, it was 
the, the fucking coldest winter. And I think I the mean, cold winter would actually have a huge impact on everything, right? Yeah. Because they could, probably could have all been murdered on the same day within the same hour. Yeah. And it would be really exactly. difficult to see yeah. versus like a July, you know, where it would be yeah. very yeah, obvious. Yeah, yeah. 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 So if they were not all murdered on the same day, which I think they were murdered. I think you're right. close to each other. But if not, were they kept hostage somewhere? Mm. I'd assume so, because the other family members would clearly contact the police if someone was missing. I don't know. It's If they even were family members, that's the big problem. Right. We just don't know. And then remember in the newspaper article where it says victims four, victim number four's hands were tied. I also read it for victim number one, but then I saw a photo from victim number one at the crime scene, and she didn't appear to have tied hands. Maybe they just saw the marks. Maybe it was... I only read that in one article. Maybe that was a complete mistake. It looks as if the police didn't release a whole lot of this kind of information, and that can be for several reasons, in my opinion. Oh, sure. So, first of all, Hamburg was at the time in the British zone, and maybe did the local police not want to give too much info to the occupation forces? Or the other way around, what if the murderer was a British soldier? The second reason I could think of is, I mean, the same reason why police everywhere to this day holds back information, so that in the case someone comes forward, they can verify the information and check if the person really knows something, right? Yeah. The third reason, and that's only based on something I read in an article from 1965, I think. So it was written 18 years after the murder. And the journalist states that he called the police department that had been working the case. And so he calls there and he asks about the 1947 rubble murder cases. And the investigator gets really agitated and he said things like, it's a disgusting case and the information about the case would be harmful to minors. And oh, kind of sounds like there could have been like a sexual aspect to those murders. Oh, okay. I mean, after all, all the victims were found naked. Mm-hmm. Maybe that was not just to hide their identities or to rob them of everything they owned. I don't know. In those years, I think we talked about it already, like how in those years, 50s, 60s, uh, it's sometimes really hard for me to get a lot of information about cases because everything was kept like more on the hush-hush, especially when it were like... um sex crimes, Mm. right? And it's more in a code when you're reading articles. Yes. So maybe that's why there's so little information out there. But, there's a huge but, what speaks against that is that today the two folders that contain all the investigation notes are open to the public. And I haven't read them because they're in in the Staatsarchiv in Hamburg, but other people have. And from all I could find online from people who had actually read them, there's nothing in the files that indicates a sexual aspect. Um, it's purely handled as a murder with robbery or some other greed-triggered crime. Sure. On the other hand, maybe some parts are missing from the files. Who knows, right? Mm. It could be. Another thing I ask myself is, apparently the police was pretty convinced that it was just one murderer. Mm-hmm. But how would one person accomplish all that? murdering four people, either keeping them locked up and killing them one by one or killing them all at once, and then placing their bodies in different locations uh, without being detected. I mean, it's possible. I just think it's a lot for one person. Yeah, I agree. The police suspected the murderer had a car, but again, 
how many people had a working car and enough fuel it was rationed. So that could, again, point to somebody working for the British army or with the British army. Mm -hmm. Public transportation was only running for a few hours every day, so most people were used to walking wherever they needed to get, so that was not a problem. And they would use a handcart to transport goods. And I mean, the victims were short, so that could work. Sure. But also, it would be hard to do. Also, if you do that at night, you would almost certainly get stopped by military police because they would suspect you... They would suspect you either just stole coal or you were on your way to the black market with your handcart. Right. Or like a... I don't know if the man is small enough, depending on how big, if it was one killer, the guy was, like, would he fit in a duffel bag, for example? You know what I mean? And Mm, mm. just be confident in the daytime, looking like you have purpose. And if it would have been so hard for him, like, like, that, that's hard. Yeah. Wouldn't he have kind of, uh, dismembered the bodies? I'm sorry that I have to say it, but. No, no. I, I know what you mean. I don't know. If the man was the largest victim at five foot two, I don't know. It sounds exhausting to me. I couldn't, I I definitely couldn't do it. That's way too much work. Do we know why they were left out? Do we, are there any, like, why they were left out on rubble? Was there a reason for that? That's interesting. I think he must have expected them to be found very quickly because, as I said, people at the time were, you know, roaming through the the ruins, trying to find things to burn, trying to find whatever. And it's not like he was hiding them very well. Right. I think it was just the easiest way to get rid of them without being seen. I think because it was this horrible winter, that the, the ground was frozen solid. Right. The of Elbe course. River was frozen solid. He couldn't have just thrown them into the water. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's the reason why they were left there. That makes sense. Okay, so, but there was a huge reward, even cigarettes. Nobody came in with a tip, nothing? There was no information given? Well, okay, so the police had actually released photos of the four victims with descriptions, and a landlady had come forward saying that she thought the old man might be one of her tenants, but it was not. Uh, Her tenant had been missing for, like, I think, two weeks but he showed up again. He was alive and well. He was just with family and he got sick. And that's uh, the delay. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, so, yeah. So, all right. And no suspects. Well, for a while, the police thought that the murders showed similarities to the crimes of Rudolf Pleil. Pleil was a German serial killer who killed between 10 and 25 women in those years following the war. And I don't want to go into too much details because I think that Rudolf Pleil will maybe get his own episode. But let's just say that the investigators took him to Hamburg, to the locations where the victims had been found. And at first he confessed to the murders, but he was found to be not the murderer of those four people. Because apparently he usually always knew all the details of the locations of the crimes and the murder scenes. And in these cases, he knew absolutely nothing, like nothing. Okay. And in the end, he simply stated, well, I can't be responsible for everything. (laughs) So helpful. So it's still a cold case. The identities of these four people are still unknown to this day. One of the old mystery sleuths uh, really took the time and he called the Oldstorf Cemetery because he kind of had the idea that the four victims might have been buried there. And he was right. They found the entry in their records. The funerals took place on 25th of March 1947, but the gravestones don't exist anymore today. 
That's such a funny thing to me. I know this came up when we did the um, Clara Rathbone case, but the whole thing about how if a cemetery plot isn't visited for a certain number of years, it just gets replaced. I mean, I know that you turn into dust after a hundred years, so... It's actually not that it's not visited for a certain number of years. It's mostly here you rent the, right. the gravesite for 25 years. Okay. And as long as there are still people here who, you know, renew the contract and pay again and pay again, that's as long as your grave is then I see. going to be kept. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so I think the theory that they had come from overseas or any other country really where they had fled to before or during the war, uh, now they wanted to return home makes the most sense. Mm -hmm. That's also why nobody was missing them. And it also explains the clothes been missing. I don't think there was a sexual aspect to it. I think, for one, if they had come from another country, then the clothes were most likely purchased there. And there would have been a way to find out. Sure. And that would give the investigators a lead. And also... At a time where a 10-year-old is happy her brother died because now she has clothes to keep her warm. it's oh, awful. You would just really take everything you could get and right. use it or sell you it. You can sell clothes. Yeah. yeah. Of yeah. course. Yeah. Another theory I read could make also sense. What if the family had returned and maybe they had had a house here or whatever property and they came back and they saw someone else living there because during the Third Reich, a lot of properties were taken from... They called back then undesired people, Jewish people, for example, and given to what they considered to be Aryan people. So the family returns. They want to claim what is rightfully theirs, but the new owners, quote-unquote, uh, they don't want to give it up. That actually seems very plausible. And if it were a group of people like that who had maybe moved into their house or where they lived, that could also explain how they kept that many people under control. And Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Wow. What a sad case. That's Extremely. And I find it so sad that, yeah, nobody knows who they were. Their identity. Yeah. It's like the whole thing with Lady of the Dunes. It's just so sad when... Mm, mm. Yeah. You just hope that someone Very would miss sad. you if you went missing. Yeah. Right. Right? That was great. Thank you. Something From the good. Very, very sad to something good. Do you have something? I do. It's been been a little intense lately, partly because I have family coming to visit for the first time since the pandemic started. So that is incredibly exciting to me. This is the longest I've ever gone without seeing my nephew. So I can't wait. And I finally uh, have been converting. So we had a room in our house, and when we moved into it, we just shoved a bunch of boxes in there because we were like, ah, oh, we have, we're going to do something with that room, but we weren't really sure what we were going to do. And so eight years later, here we are still with a room with full of boxes <laughs> that nobody can even get into. And so we're finally organizing and I'm now broke because we bought new rugs and curtains and mattresses. And I've just been doing like a dozen home decorating projects that have been on my list since we moved in. But then like the pandemic hit and I know a lot of people had like loads of extra time, but that was not the case for us. So mm -hmm. we definitely did not bother doing any DIY stuff when, when COVID hit. Nobody was coming to visit. Nobody was going to see it. So that room full of boxes just got worse, but it's finally getting sorted. So it's been really frantic. Uh, it looks like a bomb went off still. <laughs> people have been coming in to give me support. 
and help me organize. So I'm just really grateful for my friends helping and family and finally getting this project done. I think it's going to feel good. I think it's going to kind of get me a little gonna bit. It's going to feel so good. Yeah. And it's going to look great. I love the green color you chose. I'm and I can't really wait happy. to see the photos when it's finished. I'm so happy with the color. Yeah. I'm going to take lots of pictures. Paul just hung up the new. We just got, it's not expensive, but we just got like the, um, there was like, it's like wire shelving closet system kind of thing. So there's now a lot of storage in the closet in that room, which we desperately need. So I'm really excited because I'm, I'm going to have a place to just put sheets and towels, you know, like, woohoo. It's little things when you live in a very old house. I have no linen cabinets. I have no, you know, so yeah. How about you? Uh, my something good might be a little bit weird. <laughs> <laughs> but it's this Instagram account I've been following since December. <laughs> Hear me out. It's really weird, but it's really, it's, it's something good for me. Okay. It's this German couple, <laughs> very young couple, and they are super upbeat and always super optimistic and, and they have such a nice, calm way of talking and everything gets them excited. So they're awesome. And they bought a house in Sweden last year. And they renovated it and they just show stories from their life in Sweden. And it's so, tranquil and easy and simple and then they left sweden like a couple of days before christmas i think and today is the day they finally returned and i'm like yes i want to see more videos of your house in sweden please you need to give it to me because it just makes me so calm and yeah so, it's just nice it's I just love really it. nice i love it that's my something good you'll have to share it so that we can all start stalking <laughs> yeah. them together it's everything is in German, but their uh, account is <sighs> Jesse and Markus Diaries. I'm gonna post the link. I find them amazing. And she's like, she now planted all these seeds and she's, she's trying to make, they have a huge property. I mean, it's Sweden and she wants to turn this all into a beautiful garden. I'm like, yes, I also want to turn my garden into a beautiful. Let's do this together. <laughs> oh, my garden. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. I love that. So that's my something good. <laughs> that's amazing. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes have brought you some level of peace or rage, whatever your jam is, if you enjoyed us, we would so appreciate it if you would leave us a rating or a review, especially on iTunes. We're getting closer to my goal of 1,000 US reviews. We're... So appreciative for every single one of them. We really appreciate it. Patreon, if you would like to find out more about our Patreon tiers and what we have for you, check out patreon.com and search Fresh Hell Podcast. You can also go to our website, uh, which is freshhellpodcast.com, and there you'll have information on our Patreon. There's information on our merch, our um, email and PO box. Also. Our Facebook group is fantastic. Our Facebook yes. group is, so you'll find an album for each and every one of our episodes, which will have photographs and there's discussion within the albums. And then there's also a lot of um, memes, uh, vintage, obviously <laughs> great memes, um, a lot of vintage photography, a lot of antique homes or... Lots weird of just homes. weird macabre stuff. Lo lots of animal 
videos. It's basically like our, our, like us, our podcast. Yeah. Like it's so random. It's like, very random. Whatever we find interesting. Yeah. If you like the podcast, you'll like the group. I <laughs> yeah. think that's safe to say, right? 100%. So, yeah. Still, my goal is to get us into, no, not my goal. My goal is to get you to get us into the top 10 of the <laughs> podcast magazine Hot 50. Please go to podcastmagazine.com slash Hot 50. You have one vote per day for your top three podcasts. So every day you can go there and vote for us. If you don't know any other podcast, vote for Melissa from Just the Tipsters because she's fucking amazing and she deserves it. She's great. Also, Chi Charlie from Crime Lines is fantastic. Yes, Charlie from Crime Lines. There you have it. Three podcasts. Yep. Yes, please, uh, please, please help us. Help me. <laughs> She's begging you, please. Other than that, please, please tell your pets we said hi. It's so important them, to you. Do. them, treat them. Jam just had a, a huge tick. Like, I check them every single day and they have their spot-ons and I really take care. But sometimes I'm a horrible dog mom, apparently. He had a tick. <laughs> I didn't see it. It fell off. Even though he has a spot on and usually works and he had this big, like, bump on his belly and I felt so bad. So check your pets for ticks every day. If you miss one, you're not a bad pet mom. Of course. Oh happen. my God. Well, Don't here. Be too harsh on yourself. Ticks are insane yes. where we live. There's, even with everything that you have, you have to check yourself. You have to check your pant legs, your yeah. socks, your dogs. It's, exactly. your dogs are going to get ticks, but tick season is back. So look for them. What else? Be kind to... Don't be kind to the ticks. Fuck be the kind ticks. to your fellow human beings. <laughs> yeah, uh, seriously. Ticks and slugs are the only two things can get, that can get fucked in yeah. my garden. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> be kind to your fellow human being. Uh, even when it's be hard. Be kind to yourself. Yeah. Even when it's hard. Yeah. And absolutely. it's so hard to be kind to yourself too some days. I know. That's the worst for me. <laughs> I'm the meanest to myself. <laughs> it's terrible. But it's all right. And that's it. It's going to be fine. That's all. That's all we need. Just these 27 things. If you could do those for us just super <laughs> quick, that would be <laughs> super. And until next week, if, like me, you're kind of going through hell. Keep going. Tschüss. Just keep going. Bye. <laughs>